G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. I'd first like to acknowledge the traditional land on which the podcast is produced down here in Geelong and acknowledge the Wathaurung people as the traditional custodians on the lands that we made. I'd also like to extend those respects wherever you listen to the podcast and acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands where our podcast guests are joining us from. We know that First Nations Australians have told stories and use stories to pass on wisdom, create connection and share knowledge for tens of thousands of years and hundreds of generations and would like to pay homage to it as part of this podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. So, thank you for joining us as part of the GRDC In Conversation podcast and let's jump into it. Today I'm joined by Marie Crawford, a technical services manager with elders based in Toowoomba in Queensland. She's a kid from the bush. She is so incredibly passionate about soil and the importance of healthy soils in successful farming operations and the positive impact that this can have more broadly on the environment and the way that society values agriculture. Prior to her role with Elders, she spent 16 years with Pacific Seeds. In this conversation, we cover Marie's role as chair of the Australian Summer Grains Conference, the benefit in outside roles to support her in her day-to-day, the emerging opportunities and interests in biotechnology, and the importance of attracting and supporting skilled people in the grains industry. I'm joined by Marie Crawford, who's a technical services manager with Elders. She's based in Toowoomba in Queensland, joining us on a public holiday after we could say a grand final weekend of some sorts. It's a tough day to be a Queenslander, but other times there's lots to celebrate. Welcome, Marie. It's great to have you. Thanks, Ollie. Yes, it is great to be here, even though we are a bit heartbroken today. I think we'll push on and get by. (laughs) Absolutely. It's, it's, it'll be ours next year. A tough day, but we could say the real winner is rugby league and AFL, but it just doesn't quite ring the same, does it? No, but you're absolutely right. It is. They are the winners. Now, I'd love to start off. I'd change this around, but in every podcast, we want to ask a few different questions that of the same questions to a few different people just to see what they answer with. So I'd love to know, just kicking off, what's something that you've got on your bucket list? My bucket list is to... Go back to the Kimberley. I absolutely love the Kimberley in WA. Yeah, I think it's a place where it's there's no other place on earth for me. I love the territory and particularly the Kimberley though. And Ayers Rock, I've not been to Ayers Rock yet. That'd be amazing. It's on mine too. You've been around the grains industry for, I think, the majority, if not all of your professional working life. But what is your favourite grain-based dish? Favourite grain-based dish? Wow. I'd have to say sweet corn. From a grain base, yeah, it'd have to be sweet corn. Good answer. Who would be three people you'd love to have around for a meal? Well, well, Wayne Bennett, definitely. He's a really interesting guy and I've had a little bit to do with him. and He would be number one. Roger Federer, I so much respect for Roger Federer. And my grandma, if she was here today, yeah, I'd love to have my grandma around the table with me. That'd be special. Tell me, a little bit of a sports theme there. Are you a mad sports person? Yes, I was reared amongst a whole family of boys, big Catholic family, so a large family and 10 brothers. So, yes, we always played sport. As young people, we always played sport and 
mum and dad always thought that healthy bodies uh, led to a healthy mind and certainly uh, we contributed to that in terms of the healthy body piece. So. That's a very good outlook and I reckon 11 of you running around definitely could, <laughs> could make the most of that. Um, now I think that probably ties nicely with so many siblings. What was your first ever job? It depends. I mean, I was born into agriculture, but if you're talking about my first paid job, it was a nurse's aide. And that was outside of high school? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So that was at the Mitchell Hospital in Queensland. There you go. So I'd love to know, tell me a little bit more about your childhood, your siblings, whereabouts you grew up. You're obviously on a farm. Yeah. Born into agriculture. Mum and dad, we started off Mott Wellington, New South Wales, where they, they had a property and then moved into Queensland. And one after the other, um, there was a whole heap of siblings born. I'm the second eldest of 11 and had a whole heap of brothers to contend with. We moved around a lot. I guess dad sold his place, sold the farm, and then he went managing farms or big stations they were in those days for AA company and AP company, sorry, Australian Pastoral Company in those days it was. So I was born into that difference between, I guess, that combination of livestock production as well as grain production. That's what I experienced in my younger years and a lot of sheep as well. I spent some time on Noondoo and Cubby Station as a young kid. And certainly my last stint was on, on Amby Downs and then Dad went back into his own holding. And yes, he stayed there until he passed away and the property went to the eldest three boys. So I dipped out there and that's why I'm always very passionate about that succession planning. I talk about that a lot when I talk to women in agriculture groups, I talk about the importance of succession planning around those where females not just about gender it's about who's the right person for the right job absolutely and it's something that we've had a few different conversations on as well what happened with the other siblings what pathways did they go down amazing some of them are still in agriculture 50 percent of them are others are fairly high up in big corporations one of them is with queensland rail and the other two that are not in agriculture are pretty much in the transport industry i guess you would say yeah the managing trucking companies were you guys travelling around with your dad while he was doing the stations or did you guys set up a home base somewhere else? No, we're very fortunate. We all went to boarding school. I went to a boarding school in Toowoomba and Brisbane and as did the boys all went to Downlands in Toowoomba. My golly, it would have definitely kept the boarding schools happy to see your family coming through the gates. <laughs> it was a bit different though in those days, Ollie. I don't think it was quite as daunting from a cost perspective. No, not at all. Tell me a little bit more about your first jobs as the second oldest kid you were thrown right in the deep end, needing to help out on the farm from a young age? My first job in ag was for myself, actually. My brother and I, we had a passion for it and he was one of the ones that was left out of that succession plan. And so what we did is we, together, we bought a property of it for ourselves and we're still in partnership today, plus another brother today, but we went and, and worked for ourselves. And then I married went to work for Pacific Seeds, where I was for 20 years. I wanted to pursue my own passion, in which was plants. I always had an interest in plants, and I was able to do that, you know, spending 20 years at Pacific Seeds through the research arm and the breeding arm and then the commercial arm as well. Tell me a little bit about that. Did you go and study at university, or was this just a, was it a job that you stepped into and it evolved? It was a job that I basically did step into, for sure, and I think it was because I... I had people, good people skills, I guess that was what they were looking for. So someone that could communicate with farmers and could also communicate 
and educate other members of the Paxseeds team and work with the breeders, work with such a, a wide multidisciplinary team, I guess. But I quickly worked out that I needed some formal qualifications and that's where I studied externally and did a, a Bachelor of Agribusiness and Agronomy. And how did that evolve for you? That was on the side of working for Paxseeds? Yeah, yeah, that was on the side. And I had a really good, you know, had some great mentors. The breeders were absolutely amazing. I had Paxseeds and, you know, Peter Stewart and Neil Muller and Errol Corson and Alan Scott. And they encouraged me to do even more study because I had a lot to do with sorghum. My passion was grain sorghum and forage sorghum uh, while I was at, at Paxseeds and... I ended up doing a PhD, it took me nine years to finish it. I finished it last year with elders and it was, though that was started, you know, prior to coming to elders, it was something that I really wanted to do. There was so much we worked on in that sorghum space and one of the real things that I think brought a lot of value was to breed a sorghum that could actually mitigate nematodes in the soil so basically it didn't kill them but it impacted on their reproductive system so that they basically lived their life cycle out and then that basically was the end of them the life cycle didn't continue that was fitted into the horticulture industry and then I from that I gained so much knowledge working with Monash University the Monash University researchers and Paxseeds breeders. And I really gained a lot from that. And and I guess because of that livestock background, I wanted to look at, I recognised that there was a switch gene in sorghum where you could switch on genes that produced toxic compounds within the plant. And so I, I went and studied that a lot more and that's what I did my PhD on. What benefit did you find doing the extra study, both at your your bachelor in the early days, but then deciding to do that PhD. What, how did that impact you professionally? I certainly recognised in the industry for it, that's for sure. But I think more importantly, you know, my focus was always around giving good advice to growers and, and having a really solid, profitable industry as such. And, you know, the advice that you could actually bring, the different conversation that you could actually have because of the knowledge that you had at a different level, that more technical knowledge, and the understanding and the implications of how plants work and how the environment impacts on plants and things you can do to mitigate the downstream effects on livestock. That was really, I think that was the biggest outcome of that. Has your passion changed over this stage of your career as, as you've been exposed to different things as you've learnt more? Has it stayed quite consistent throughout? Pretty consistent, Ollie, in not necessarily all about plants and the like and research, but definitely research, I suppose, but not just on plants. The information and the knowledge and the, that I gathered from doing that study has now led me to into this field of biological products and how they work within a plant and fit within a plant to improve the efficiencies and yield potential for farmers. So it's really the underpinning thing here, you know, the catalyst is still about making sure that we've got a strong viable industry and researching and providing some really solid agronomic information and technical information to growers so that they can make more informed decisions and do things more efficiently and more effectively. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about biologicals? I've started to hear more of in the last little while, but can you just tell me a little bit more about them and how you came to be involved and understand more about them? Yeah, it's a real passion of mine. And again, as I said before, it underpins, what underpins all of this stuff for me is about making sure that 
we're providing growers with the opportunity to be really profitable and continuously profitable because if they are then we've got a you know a strong industry without farmers we don't have harvest don't have a jobs and harvest wouldn't eat in terms of the biologicals i guess you know at any given day our commercial team in elders would get a number of companies coming through that have products that they want to talk to elders about that they believe have a fit in the agricultural industry however there's not a lot known about them but from an elders perspective we want to make sure that the information that we put out there is is well understood and that we understand it as advisors that we really understand it as well and that we're getting the most out of the information that we're given that we're not just looking at a glossy brochure and believing everything that we read so what it's led to is for the last five years I've been researching a number of when I say a number it's in excess of 400 products we've tested out at the Tassari Research Centre and what we've uncovered is they all work to different degrees and in different ways as well they all have different functions within a plant as well it's not to say that if something doesn't provide you the result this year that you throw it out and they don't and think that they don't work what i found in my research was that they do work but it's about how to extract that the best out of it and how do you get that efficiency and effectiveness out of that product and you know it's really simple when you think about it we've started to use cofactors and layer products mixed products in terms of insecticides and fungicides and herbicides so it stands to reason that we would then start to apply that methodology to nutritional products as well. What I found was that these products as will never be, at this point in time, through my research, they're not going to be standalone products, but they're definitely going to increase the efficiency of the synthetics. So you need the combination of the synthetic and the biological to get uh, greater efficiency from your synthetics these days. It's a really interesting space, a lot of conjecture around it, and the only way forward is to look at data. And we all live and die by data from a research perspective. That's what we make our decisions on. And that's what good advisors and good farmers make their decision around data. We found that there are a number of products that definitely add value and, and are worthwhile putting into a program. They've got to be part of a program. They're not standalone products. I think that's a big part of the discussion, isn't it? It's not a black and white. It's kind of quite a gray where these things fit in. One thing I found really interesting to learn, it was only a couple of years ago, but I'd spent a few years and doing a bit of sowing and I'd never ever put two and two together that the inoculant we were putting on beans, faber beans down here in Victoria, was actually a biological. And when someone told me, I was like, oh, God. and I wonder how often that actually happens where you just think, oh, I'm just putting a product on, blah, 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 but actually understanding that it's a biological, it's not a synthetic, it's blah, blah, blah this is the benefits of it, is actually not getting through to, the, I guess, the applicators or the people actually on the ground because you just see it as another product you're kind of coating the seed with? I think we take so much for granted and what I found was what we don't know enough about is the impact of root exudates as well and compatibility, the root exudates and how that impacts on compatibility of the product, getting it into the plant as well. So there's some really good information there that we found. And if you think about root exudates, their primary function is that it's, they're a defense, it's part of a defensive trait mechanism. And so that's there to protect the plant. And so can I just jump in there, Marie? Can you please tell me what is a, I'm even going to struggle trying to say it, a root excavate? Yeah, root exudate. So root exudate is a substance that's exuded from the root hairs. So that's basically, 
it can be waste product, you know, from a, it can be carbohydrates and different other sugars and that actually feed good microbial bacteria in the soil and fungi in the soil. So you, it has a, has a twofold effect. It can overcome pathogens within the soil. Some of them can overcome pathogens in the soil. And that's why we see these, what we call alleliopathic impact where we see yellowing if we've planted, say, canola that doesn't host VAM. So the root exudates of canola actually are not very good if we want to grow a grain sorghum crop straight after in the same field. And that's because it doesn't host VAM and it doesn't increase the microbial colonies within the soil. So it doesn't contribute to that soil health perspective from building microbes. But what it does do, it takes out pathogens. It can alleviate crown rot for instance in wheat but a lot of these new biologicals the the new age modern biologicals are, are manufactured and I guess are formulated very differently so that they are a lot more compatible with root exudates and become symbiotic with the plant so they colonize within the roots of the plant and there's this symbiotic relationship between the plant and and the product it feeds it and then in turn, the, the microbes and the, the product uh, protects the plant as well. So what are maybe some of the trends or observations that you're seeing and expect to see in the biological space in, say, the next five to 10 years? I think we're going to see a greater uptake of it. Our biggest drawback right now is cost. So cost of production. Some of these products are just not, they're just out of the ballpark. If you're growing a really you know, high-value crop, such as horticulture, even cotton, for example. We're doing a lot of work in cotton right now with some of these biologicals. So if you're growing a high-value crop, it's a no-brainer to have a look at what fits, what's compatible with what crop group and what products and work them into a program. They're going to become more affordable, I believe, as we get the uptake, as it increases. It, like anything, I believe, you know, it will become more affordable to be used in the mainstream broadacre. But right now, that's the biggest drawback. And are there some short-term trade-offs and compromises that people are needing to take in order to transition their business to utilising more biologicals, but also, I guess, creating that opportunity that as new technologies, as the accessibility to the different products comes up, that they can be in a position to use them? Like, is this... I don't want to say the word short-term pain, but is there, yeah, some of those trade-offs that need to be really thought through strategically to see what does that rotation, what does our farming system look like in X number of years? I think, yeah, most definitely. And there are some products out there that won't cause them too much grief right now that do fit into the broad acre system. And that's part of the work that we've been doing at Tasari. And some of these are, these products are around about that four to five dollars a hectare to get a, you know, a tonne to the hectare, you know, 800 kilograms to a tonne. Yeah. <laughs> public holiday <laughs> increase in yield and, and I think you know it's not just about that though it's about thinking about the system more holistically and I know it's we get paid and our, our clients get paid based on yield you know what they produce but it's about some of the intangibles that we don't think about it's about that impact on soil health longer term soil health it's about you know building good carbon chains within the soil itself and the great thing about carbon is that it's a carrier for these products as well. So it increases and adds to the efficacy of uptake of some of these biologicals as well. So it's an important component. So I think it's about that longer term view, you know, the wider picture. It's not just about 
the yield I'm going to get off this paddock today. It's about how does this fit into a program for me so that I'm continually going to be improving this paddock to have increased yield year on year. That's through building better soils and more robust soils. And I love on your LinkedIn profile, you I need to get it up here, but your tagline right at the, bit, the top, I'm going to have to get it up in front of me here so I don't stuff it up here, Marie, but, or you might be able to tell me off the top of your head. But it's about the, pretty well the whole of life is sustained by the top six inches. We owe our existence to a six-inch layer of our topsoil. That underpins so much of what you do and so much of your thinking. 100%. And I've always been a strong advocate for when I train agronomists as well within our own organisation here. My ethos and my theme has always been around soil drives productivity. It's the factory that drives productivity. And if your factory isn't humming on eight cylinders, then you're certainly not reaping the benefit that you could be. It's about getting it into a better condition and getting it humming and having it healthy. And do you think that the conversations have really, and it probably ties into that biological piece where we're now starting to look at more and more sciences. So like obviously they've always existed in and around farming, but there has been a real focus potentially on say the chemistry side, but now we're actually looking at that, the biology of how everything actually interacts and how do we utilize the strengths of nature and what's existed in those ecosystems to actually go, how does that underpin our farming systems and practices? Oh, I think it's an exciting space uh, to see a lot more funding. You know, if GRDC are going to be funding some projects, I think this is a major area that needs to be right on the, on the middle of the table because I think this is where we're going to get our next productivity gain from. I doubt that we're going to get it in a lot of crops. We're not going to see it come from genetic gain, but we're definitely going to see it come from better practices. And, and this is part of that. This is part of that story. I want to step sideways because I think we've got a lot that we can delve into and flesh out about your elders' days. But I'm, I'd be really interested to know that decision to leave Pacific Seeds, you spent 20 years with one company, which is, I nearly want to say unfathomable. I'd probably most definitely will not do that in my t- whole career. But what was it like and what spurred on the decision to move and who did you consult going through that? I'd love to know more about that process. It was a very agonising decision. For a few reasons. I guess, I, you know, you, you get into this comfort zone. You know your stuff. You've got it down pat. You know that you're going to always be reasonably successful in whatever you do because you know your stuff. But I realised there was a lot I didn't know and there was a lot that I really wanted to do. And to work for someone like elders that are just so multifaceted was going to give me that opportunity. But it took me three months to give them an answer, to give elders an answer, to be honest. There was a lot of toing and froing, and I had a lot of very close associations with Seeds from a staff point of view, the people, and still do to this day. But not just that, it's about industry, you know. Um, I have a broader view, although I, I felt very fulfilled at Pacific Seeds because we were part of a team that was really hitting some goals. But once you've done it, you've done it and there wasn't the opportunity to really expand on that and elders offered me that opportunity I guess after the three months I when some pressuring from them to give them an answer I said yes I'd, I'd come across and wow it's been a ride as well. Yeah and I was gonna say because some people could fall into the default of saying oh I've never looked back. Did you look back in those early days and go oh have I made the right decision it was quite comfy knowing every system, all the processes, all the people. It's a daunting new world out there. 
The first week, I made so many phone calls to my mentors and people I was close to in the industry. I really questioned if I'd made the wrong decision because there was just so much it was overwhelming. It was it was a bit like the TARDIS, to be honest. You open doors and there's so much in front of you and it was very overwhelming. But had some really good people within Elders Good, the great management team who had a very strong focus and a very strong vision on, on where they wanted to take the company and what my role was. And uh, they steadied that ship and uh, sorted me out pretty quickly as to what their expectations were. And it wasn't to conquer the world like I thought I needed to do and to just put one foot in front of the other and you know, take every quarter as a as a stepping stone. And pretty much that's where I landed. And I haven't actually looked back since I adopted that, you know, that process, that method of going forward. And I still practice it today. I'm really interested in on this. Can you talk me through a little bit about that? So do you break down your year into like, into quarters, but then like, how did you, because I've, it's something that I, I'll say I struggle with in the sense of yeah, you can think of, oh, these are all the things we want to do and this is what we could do. But then yeah, when you actually start to write things on paper, you think, oh, that's like a 10-year plan I've got in front of me. But how did you actually get back in control and reduce that overwhelm to a state where you could actually, one, deliver what the business needed, but two, actually kind of reduce the anxiety and stress on yourself? Yeah, I guess it was, um, I thought back about to one of the, my great mentors and one of the greatest losses, I guess, to the agricultural industry was Bob Hensel, Dr. Bob Hensel, who was the sorghum breeder for the DPI. And he always said to me, if you've got a big problem, you break it into small pieces. And I always recognised that was probably the best advice anyone has ever given me in my whole entire life. And I talk to young agros and I talk to, you know, farmers about that same methodology today. And so that's what I have to do. So quarters for me, give me, don't take me out that far that I can, you know, I'm going to lose control because we work seasonally, obviously. So the quarter piece really fits in nicely with seasons. It fits in with workloads. It fits in with what's achievable and gives you, keeps you focused for some short-term goals. And have you found that you've had to juggle that being, obviously you're, you're very involved in the summer grains industry, but also, how involved are you in the winter as well? Because then that would all of a sudden create quite a busy year. <laughs> I love having a crack at my southern counterparts. I always tell them they only work six months of the year. <laughs> and I absolutely <laughs> love doing that to them. And I tell them that there's no rest for the wicked up here. We, we continue to work season after season. You know, we our summers roll into winter and winter rolls back into summer for us. So I think from a winter perspective, you know, we're an opportunity cropping. It's a winter crop for us up here is an opportunity crop. And that gives us the time to then really focus on some of those other things and particularly the research. So if we look at what's going on, you know, what elders are contributing to in research terms at Tassari, the biggest majority of our work is done in winter out there, which fits in really well with the industry as well. They've got some time, you know, the industry's got time to actually come and have a look at what you're doing. Are they really interested in what we're doing? That you know, our field days are really successful and it's just a good time to be able to do it and it's the most efficient way and effective way to do it. And I'd love to know, well, we've got the Tassari piece, but you also talk quite a lot about this, call it sustainability, but the future of the industry and seeing the industry continue to thrive. A huge part of that is the next generation and the next gen of agros. You'd, I presume you spend a lot of time with the, I'll say the young up-and-comers and the next gen? 
Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. And there's some real talent out there. It's about how do we nurture that and how do we create that next generation of specialists as such? Because that's what we're in danger of losing is those specialists, Ollie. And that's what really worries me the most. You know, if someone said to me, what keeps you awake at night? That would be the thing that keeps me awake is worrying about where is our next generation of specialists going to come from? And what I mean by that is I was really fortunate to come up underneath some really good researchers that worked in the public system, as I mentioned before, and also in the private system. The issue we've got today is that you could name on one hand those specialists that work in the public system today that are providing really good mentorship to commercial agronomists and commercial advisors. And so they're providing, might be providing lots to PhD students and, and you know, people within their own organisations and universities. But these guys in my era, they came through and they were the ones that were providing just as much mentorship and leadership, taught us a lot about leadership skills and the like into the commercial arena. And that's where we were getting it from. So now there's a lot more focus on the commercial business businesses filling that gap. And I'm not sure that we're doing it that well. Do you have a solution for it? Or like given the audience that we get on this podcast, like what would be your ask or something that you'd like to put out there? I'd like to see a lot more scholarships for young people. You know, we have some good ones, but I don't think we have enough of them. A lot more opportunity for young people to, who are not brought up on the land either, who are not ingrained in agriculture, you know, like I was to start with. There's a lot of talent out there. And the reason I say that is that we're going to need those young people because modern agriculture is so different. We're going to need people that are very differently uh, focused and have a lot broader skill set or different skill set, particularly in that technical area that digital ag tech is a classic example of that. So I think I would love to see a lot more focus Given, I know that elders in their graduate program that we focus on that a lot, making sure that, you know, if there's someone that that's going to be an absolute walk up start as such, based on their attitude, we need to give them that opportunity, regardless of the fact that they are, might be a town kid or a city kid or whatever, you know, mightn't have had that, don't have that ingrained ag in them. And I always say internally here, I can teach skill, but I can't teach will. And that's why I'm saying there are a lot of young people out there with a lot of the right attitude, the right mental attitude, the right attitude to resilience that could bring a whole lot of value to the industry. And we shouldn't forget about that. We talk about making sure that, you know, we've got up and coming young people in agriculture. And I've actually heard people say, oh, well, if they haven't got an agricultural background, it's probably a waste of time. That's the biggest mistake we could ever make. So do you think rather than, yeah, than the applicants changing, it's us as an industry, as businesses, as participants that need to actually do the changing and create that space and opportunity and go, okay, well, it's going to be an investment of a few years to get someone across the lingo and up to speed on all things agriculture, but long term, they're going to be a much larger asset than the alternative. Oh, 100%, Ollie. And I talked about the importance of data before. A lot of these young people are just absolutely wizards with data. And we're going to need more and more of those. You know, we talk to the digital ag tech, the digital platforms, and, and they're employing these types of people because they have to. 
they need those data scientists as such. I just think that we need to have a different approach and embrace people for the talent that they could bring and look at them as an investment, not a cost. The last part I'd like to touch on with you is around your involvement outside of your day-to-day role. You've been involved in various areas, including as chair of the Australian Summer Grants Conference. How have these roles benefited you in in your career? (laughs) They've taught me a lot. They've taught me how to manage groups of people, number one, diverse groups of people with different personalities and with some big egos in our industry. And my role as the chair in the Summer Grains Committee really is to keep that nice, even balance and make sure that everybody's humming and working, you know, synchronously together and harmoniously together. And even in in a workspace, it's the same thing. It's given me those leadership skills on, you know, how to lead a team of people and how to communicate really well with people. It's interesting. It's taught me as well what makes some people tick and how to tap into that and get the best out of them. I think that's some of the big learnings for me is really about how to work really well as a group of people towards a common goal and to achieve that goal because it's all about success. It's For me, it's all about making sure that our industry is successful. And that bigger goal of industry success, what does it look like for you day to day at the moment in the areas that you're really influencing? Oh, number one is farmers making sure that as I said before, making sure that they're successful because if they're not successful, then we're in trouble. And it's about making sure that our people are across the latest information that they need to be across, that they're able to confidently and technically utilise that efficiently. And it's a soft skills bit as well, Ollie. We tend to talk to people about how much they know about being an agronomist. One of the biggest things they need to know is how to communicate with a farmer. And so those soft skills are really important. So, you know, I teach our growers how to communicate with growers and, you know, we problem solve on, you know, what might be going on here with a grower when something doesn't go right, you know. So it's about understanding how to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And it's not just the elders people as well. I get get into conversations in lots of different places with lots of young people as well uh, in different coloured shirts that that want to have that conversation as well. What do you think? How should I do this? And it's about being that industry mentor, being seen as an industry mentor that can bring some value to a whole range of people. Yeah, and I think it's that role that you play to so many others that when we were looking for people to come and have a chat for as part of the GRDC and conversations, you came straight up and it was someone we should definitely get on early in this next series because you're someone which I know lots of people in the spheres that we've been chatting look to in terms of, well, who's a great representative of the industry, but also who's the type of person who's had a career which can help others learn, can inspire them and can pass on that information for how people can actually pursue opportunities for themselves, both inside the farm gate, but also wherever it might be that they want to have involvement in the grains industry. Yeah, no, thanks for that. But again, I'll go back to it. It's about the mentors that I had, the people that mentored me way, way back, showing my age now, but the people that mentored me in my green era as such, my younger years, I'm the product I am today because of them. And so I've got one final question. You say in your green era, but you still got a lot to contribute and, and we've all got so much to gain from you. But just personally, I'd love to know what gets you out of bed in the morning to do what you do? I just love it. I must be mad, but anyway, I I just love that day-to-day diversity, the wide variety that's on offer in agriculture. It's an absolute smorgasbord, isn't it? I mean, I can go from talking to 
an advisor or an agro in a paddock having a look at something to jumping in a tractor with a farmer and physically experiencing it myself as well to driving to Brisbane and sitting in a boardroom, you know, talking to the decision makers of big corporations that uh, we deal with. Yeah, but I think it's about keeping it real, you know, keep it real. We understand that there are lots of challenges out there and, and I think having some empathy Empathy is a major thing, being very empathetic and having some understanding of what is happening here and being inquisitive, having a, an open mind and being inquisitive about what's the solution. You know, if we've got a problem, what is the solution? And that goes for people as well. You know, if you're, you know, creating a problem, then you need to be part of the solution. I've always said that. I agree wholeheartedly with you there. And I just wanted to say, Marie, thank you so much for coming and having a chat. I know you've spent has been maybe a little bit more of a tougher public holiday than others. <laughs> My condolences to you on the football, but we know that agriculture and farming goes on and there will always be next year and gosh. There will be. Yes, there definitely will be. The good thing about football cards in Brisbane is they've got good young sides and a great future. So fingers crossed for you, but thank you so much for joining us for a chat. Thanks so much, Ollie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grain sector. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.